This town and this reserve were created at almost the exact same moment, almost 150 years ago. They've been neighbors for over 100 years, and for almost all that time, they know almost nothing about each other. The Valley of the Birdtail is co-authored, but it's sort of this vision of this co-authored Canada, where we're working hard to try and find a unison between our two voices, which aren't that far apart but far enough apart that what you get at the end is a really a well-worn text that moderates, I think, between our two views and between a view of an indigenous and a subtler Canada. That's Andrew Stobo Snyderman and Douglas Anderson. They're authors of the new book, Valley of the Birdtail, an Indian reserve, a white town, and the road to reconciliation. They're our guests today on the Akamemuk podcast. Danse Tuau and welcome back to the Akamemuk Podcast. I'm your host, Chief Perry Belgard, former National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. And Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for let's keep going and don't give up. And on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And today, we're very pleased to welcome Douglas Anderson. He's an associate professor at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, and he's a proud member of the Opasquia Cree Nation, and Andrew Stobo Steiderman, an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, and Maclean's. He's also a former student of Douglas. So welcome to both of you to the Akamema Podcast, guys. Thanks, Chief Belgar. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Right on. So... First question here to Stobo. In this book, in the Valley of the Birdtail, you write that the stories of a First Nations white community who are divided by a valley, a river, and 150 years of racism. So what, what drew you to this place? This reserve is called Weiwesi Kapo, and, and the, the white town is, is Rossburn, Manitoba. So how do you become aware of this place, and what drew you to it in the, in the very, very first way? What was the catalyst? I think the thing that I was thinking about generally was education and schools. And I had found out that in my lifetime, not as a historical thing, but in my lifetime, and I'm in my late 30s, basically as long as I've been alive, that schools on reserve had been getting way, way less funding compared to provincial public schools. And this was something that was just really bothering me for a number of years and I had trouble accepting this as a, as a non-indigenous Canadian. I think I was naive enough to ask myself, you know, how is this possible? And especially after everyone was apologizing for residential schools, it seemed like we were doing this another horrible thing to First Nation kids. So the general thing I was thinking about was this education gap, which of course you have done an enormous amount of amazing work on. And, I've, and I was looking for a story to explain this problem, which seems so obviously wrong. And I heard about Weiwei C. Capo and Rossburn in a story that I read back in 2012 uh, in the Winnipeg Free Press. And the story was about how these two communities had started working together to equalize funding for kids on the reserve. And so all of a sudden, literally overnight, because of this unique local deal, these kids on the reserve were getting the exact same amount of funding as the kids just down the road in the town. And it was like a 35, 40% increase, boom, magically it's equal. And so this 
seemed like this is what got me interested in these places because I thought, aha, something good is happening here. And so we could explore that and see what's going on. But also it's a way to explain, you know, why was it so unequal for so long? What was it like as an indigenous community go through that? And how did the town next door make sense of that? Just, you know, just down the road, sharing the same value. Did they notice? Did they care? And so that's what brought me to these places. Hmm. After you wrote the McLean's article 10 years ago now, approximately, why did you come to the conclusion that you couldn't write this book alone? Yeah, so so after that catalyst, I wrote this story for McLean's, as you just mentioned. And that's when I started getting, in, you know, getting to know people in these communities. And for a while, it was just me. And, uh, and in my own mind, I thought, you know, I've worked as a lawyer representing indigenous communities. I've been a journalist. I can do this. And Douglas and I have subsequently joked, you know, or it's mostly Douglas joking. He says, you know, like, why is it that white people always think they can do this on their own? And at first, I kind of went to these communities with this idea that I could do this story. And I'm glad to say that I came to realize not too long that, you know, I just, I wasn't capable of of doing this. If I really wanted to understand the point of view of an indigenous family and community, because this book is really about two families over many generations, if I really wanted to do that right, there's no way I could do that on my own. Partly, not just because I'm a non-indigenous person, but it's also because my life experience is just not, you know, in that universe. And I also knew that Douglas, as my professor, had been thinking about this stuff in a really serious way for a lot longer than I had. And I thought, as a team, we can do this much better. And I believe that we have co-authored this book ultimately because we want a more co-authored Canada. And if we've done this story right, I think it's only because I reached out to Douglas and he graciously agreed to work on this and make it so much better as a team. That's a good segue over to you, Douglas. What are your thoughts about this whole point? Well, I I just want to go back if I can, and I just want to clarify a point that we were talking about earlier about the the budgetary difference between an on-reserve school and an off-reserve school. And so what does that actually mean in practical terms for a school on reserve to get $7,000 per student and a provincial school system on the other side of the river to get $10,000? Well, what that means is if you add it all up, the school on reserve has less money to pay for teachers and less money to pay for supplies and less access to technology. And so, of course, they are able to hire you know, teachers that are not as good, uh, administrative staff that won't stick around. But worse than that, though, is, and this is the thing that is very hard for people to understand, but what that difference in funding also means is that when a kid from the reserve goes to a school across the river in town, the reserve has to pay that school $10,000 out of a budget that they only got $7,000 for. And that means in order to send kids to high school, they need to cannibalize the budget of their own elementary school. And so it's not just that the students are receiving different levels of funding, it's that the reserve has to pay the higher level of funding when those students go to, ta- go to schools in town. So just wanted to make sure that what, what that was about. And so... <clears throat> Uh, so Stobel was a student of mine uh, in my very, I think I was his very first class uh, when he attended law school and he was a great student and uh, super fun to work with and we, we became friends and I was aware that he was working on this project in the background and um, 
Eventually, about three years ago, uh, Stobo came to me with part of a manuscript and asked me to join in. And I was a little hesitant at first, um, in part because, uh, you know, working with another writer, is a, it's a very serious commitment. It's going to take a long time. You're going to have to have all kinds of um, disagreements about um, all sorts of stuff. But at the same time, I, I knew Stobo was a really talented writer. I knew he was onto a good story. Uh, and I saw this as the opportunity to take uh, some of the academic work that I've been doing, uh, which is, you know, theoretical and pie in the sky, and really uh, bring it down to the lives of real people and be able to talk about what a new relationship between indigenous and settler people might look like in the future. So uh, I accepted the challenge and it was actually, I have to say, it was really super fun to do. It was like a pandemic project. You know, we started just as the pandemic began. We've no, we've almost never seen each other in person um, during the writing part of the book. We did it all mm-hmm. sort of on Google Docs and over Zoom. And, you know, we're not, I think, politically that far apart from one another, but far enough that what results in the text of Valleys of Birdtail is a real hewing as between our points of view. And, um, you know, words really matter. And um, I think, for example... There was a line early on where I think the line as written said something about, um, you know, indigenous nations on the prairies they once called their own. And I was like, what do you mean they didn't call them their own? They owned them. And so I was like, well, that's pretty strong. So, you know, we argue back and forth about 45 minutes, and I think we end up landing on text that says, um, on lands indigenous people once governed as their own which I think carries all the right messaging, but holds back in the right way. And so there's a way in which, you know, Valley of the Birdtail is co-authored, but it's sort of this vision of this co-authored Canada, where we're Mm -hmm. working hard to try and find a unison between our two voices, which aren't, again, as I say, that far apart, but far enough apart that what you get at the end is a really a well-worn text that moderates, I think, between our two views and between a view of an indigenous and a subtler Canada. Do you think this story you got is, is typical, like between the Indian Reserve and the white town? Yeah, I think this is all too typical. I remember I was looking at an early draft, and um, I had spent some time in the prairies when I was uh, a kid. Um, and there were Ukrainians everywhere, so there's that part of the story that I was really familiar with. Um, and I, I went to high school in, in northern BC, and again, it's a real hockey culture. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I remember reading, I was like, I know these guys. Like, I went to high school (laughs) with these guys. And more than that, when I lived in Quinnell in the interior of BC, when I went to high school there, there were kids who were bussed in from schools uh, from the reserves all around. And so I went to school with Maureen, who's one of the characters in the book. And I recognize in Maureen's mom, uh, Linda, I recognize my aunties and my cousins. I see in the successes and the failures and the characters in the story, people that I know, my reserve community, uh, the Opaskwiat Cree Nation, is exactly like Rossburn and Wayway, where Mm -hmm. uh, the reserve is on one side of the river, on the other side is the town of the Paw, Manitoba. Two communities lived side by side for 100 years. The theater is a... (laughs) It's not segregated officially, but people still sit on different sides of the theater, Indians and townies on different sides. So there's... Valley of the Birdtail is about this one set of communities, but it resonates with communities all across the country. The characters Mm -hmm. are familiar. The economic circumstances are familiar. This is not just a story of small town uh, Manitoba. This is a 
a, a picture of small town Canada. When I read the book, that's what I picked up as well. It, it's it can you talk about Waywasicapo and Rossburn, but it could be anywhere where there's a re- reservation and and a town, you know, and the divides that are there. But if we see that and we want to build a better country together as First Nations people and non First Nations people, or how can we do that? What do you see next steps going forward to to build a better closest gap, closest divide between us? What do we have to do to do that? I think that. Um, in 2015, when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report came out, I think we had this sense that, you know, settler Canada had been smacked with the truth of residential schools, and now we could begin the healing process. But I think what we have discovered over the past seven years is that we're still really at the truth part. And um, I think the uh, signs of unmarked graves outside of residential schools and Kamloops and other places are, are, these are signs that the truth isn't, it's not out yet. And I, you know, I study these, these issues as an academic, but even I, when I reread Valley, to see the chain of injustices of government policies from one to another, to see how they fit together, how they're designed to work together, I was taken aback and surprised by that, and then by the by the coldness of some of the actors, people who say things like, um, you know, oh, a little starvation will do them good. Like they, they feel free to write that in their correspondence. Just the the coldness of humanity. So I think that people need to see the truth. They it's really hard to understand the legit the legitimacy of indigenous claims today legal claims, political claims, economic claims, until you understand the actual history uh, about what Indigenous people have been through as a result of intentional government policies. Like the poverty is no accident. You know, the lack of clean water is no accident. These are the results of intentional policies of, of neglect and inequality. And so the way I think we get to a, a brighter future begins with an unveiling of the past, a looking back. And I think the Valley of the Bird Tale is an honest account of that shared history. And it is a shared history. And it, it's one that we're all responsible for in some way. Um, so I think that once people begin to see uh, how it is we got to where we are with open eyes and an honest account, uh, they'll be prepared to imagine uh, better futures than the ones we are imagining for ourselves right now. Yeah, it's like when I read the book, you, you, you both keyed in on two things that had a huge impact on Indigenous peoples. And one was the imposition of the residential school system, right? You know, the taking away the, of children from their families and indoctrinating them. Think, uh, what's that phrase? That, to kill the Indian and the child, right? The residential school systems. And today we still feel the intergenerational trauma of those systems. That's one piece. But then you also reference this other thing called the Indian Act. Mm -hmm. So between those two government policies of the residential school systems, which I say was a genocide of our people, and the Indian Act, which was colonization and oppression, you know, keeping us on the reserve. You even talk about the permit system and everything else. Between those two things, it results in the way things are today. So your point, then, Douglas, is about the education, awareness, and truth-telling. Yes. That has to happen. What do you think about that, Stobo? I come at this as someone who grew up in Montreal, you know, not that far from Kanawaki, but I grew up in a pretty oblivious, Mm non-Indigenous family. 
And, uh, you know, we, we were talking about truth and reconciliation in South Africa, you know, being led by Nelson Mandela. And we talked about genocide in Rwanda and in Bosnia. And so I think I, perhaps like many people, have, have been slowly waking up. You know, and for me, it happened 10 years ago. And as Douglas was saying, I think for a lot of people, it was maybe in 2015. And there was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission going around the country, you know, giving survivors a platform to share their stories. And so people are starting to pay more attention. Mm. I was one of those people. And I think one of the things that excites me about this book is that some of the main characters are, you know, white people who, you know, as adults, and in one case of Nelson, you know, very late into his life, you know, they show a capacity to mm -hmm. learn and to grow. And so, so from my point of view, I, 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 part of what I've seen in this story in my life is kind of a hunger of people to learn. And I think people are ready to hear a bit more of that truth. Mm -hmm. And, um, that makes me hopeful and, and excited. And I hope maybe we'll get to this later on in the conversation. But I, I think, you know, at the end of the at the end of the book, at the very, very end, we propose some some directions we may go. Um, but the, the bulk of the story is about human beings growing and changing over time. And and it, that's a process and we're slowly digesting the truth and I hopefully it's making us a bit more ready for reconciliation. Again, that's truth telling before you can do any healing or reconciliation. Like, and you talk about the apartheid in South Africa and it's often been said that Canada's re reserve system, uh, in fact, the apartheid was modeled after the, the Indian reserve system here in Canada, you know, especially with the pass and the permit system that was followed. So the South Africans said, hey, that's a great way of controlling indigenous peoples. Let's use that in South Africa. So it was modeled. And a lot of Canadians don't know that or realize that. So right in our own, our own country here called Canada, there's a lot of that stuff going on. Well, Douglas? Perry, I'll, I'll be honest. We, we did actually look for that documentary uh, that 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 documentary look we we looked for a document that was going to link the two directly and there's some sort of vague references but we were never comfortable coming out and saying um, that that we had evidence that these two were were directly connected but I want to talk about something else quickly and that's mm -hmm. to get back to your point earlier about like there's the Indian Act and there's residential schools and. I think that that is how we experienced these injustices in the past is that there was, there was one thing and then sometime later there was this other thing. But the residential schools are authorized by the Indian Act, Section 114, which was not repealed in Canadian law until the year 2014. It was Stephen Harper actually repealed that section of the Indian Act. That sec further on, that section also included authorization uh, to enter the home of an Indian to obtain the children and then mm -hmm. authorized the use of whatever force was necessary uh, to detain that child. And so, there's, you know, I was struck by two things. One, this is like, Again, this is the two pieces of government policies operating hand in hand, one to reinforce the other. Mm -hmm. And the second thing was this shocking realization that, you know, what was happening at the schools was like, you know, largely under the church. But the federal crown interacts with students at two points, right? Like one where they pick them up and one where the kids run away and the child's going to uh, encounter a truant officer. In both those circumstances, the act authorizes violence against children. 
Mm-hmm. And this was language that was present in the act until 2014. Uh, my children legally could be registered as Indians as, as late as 2011, uh, but I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I waited until 2016 until there was just no chance uh, that that legal author- authorization could be used. And people would be like, that's crazy. That's never going to happen. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, me and that old Jewish lady who's got a whole chicken in her purse. <laughs> like, it's not that it, it's not that it can't happen. It's that it, it did happen. And mm-hmm. that for a long time in Canadian history, until very recently, uh, the government was authorized to take our children uh, to whatever school they wanted. Mm-hmm. So again, this this past theme we just chatted about has always been education and awareness and truth telling before any kind of healing and, and reconciliation can happen between our peoples. But I think on, on the prairies especially, and I'm going to make a statement here and see what you, you gentlemen think about it, is that First Nations people are still viewed in that old stereotypical way, you know, that we're the lazy, dumb, stupid, welfare, all that kind of thing. And there, there's, uh, we're, we're frowned upon in a negative way by non-Indigenous peoples. Now, would you agree with that statement? And if you do, what can we do to fix that? You know, because we've got so much First Nations people that are doctors and lawyers and scientists and everything else. And how do we fix the divide that's still there or the perception that first Na- uh, non-First Nations people, uh, non-Indigenous peoples have towards First Nations people. Because even in 2015, when the TRC came out with their report, and everybody was talking about this great report now about the residential schools, and I made this statement as National Chief. If we're going to have reconciliation in this country, I'm going to ask white people, non-Indigenous people, to open up their minds and hearts and get rid of that stereotype and view First Nations in a different way. That's what I said then, but that's years ago. What do you think about those statements? What can we do to fix those, st- those, those stereotypes going forward? Well, this book is about these two communities that share this valley. And what you see is that, you know, you have people growing up in the town who are right next to a reserve and all they've got in their minds are these stereotypes. Yep. And that's sad. You know, they they literally, this town and this reserve were created at almost the exact same moment, almost 150 years ago. They've been neighbors for over 100 years. And for almost all that time, they know almost nothing about each other. And in the town, if you went to the one, you know, bar and you, you know, you listen to people telling their jokes at, at a, you know, at a over lunch Unfortunately, I think you'd hear a lot of those stereotypes, mm-hmm. and I think we know what all of them are. So, you know, the part of, that part of the story is sad. You can be so close and know so little. And I think part of what we see in the people of this book and part of what we're trying to do with this book is at the very minimum is, you know, we're, we're trying to, to get people to hear each other's stories. And one of the things in the book that I think is interesting is that there's actually a lot of parallels between the story of Ukrainian mm-hmm. immigrants in Canada. And one of the, one of the families in this book is a Ukrainian Canadian family and indigenous people, you know, Ukrainians faced a lot of racisms when they came to Canada, they were interned actually during world war one, which was not the same as 60 years of a past system, which turned reserves into prisons, but still there were these parallels. And yet, you know, people haven't heard those stories about 
each other. And, you know, unfortunately, people can grow up and spend their whole lives and kind of attribute their success to their own hard work and attribute the failure of people, in this case, on the reserve to their laziness or their stupidity. But all the while, in the background, the government is treating these two places and these two groups of people in a totally different way. And it's not... And that's what's making the difference. There's nothing accidental about why the town does well and why the reserve struggles in a lot of ways. It's because the government is oppressing one group of people and they're trying to do everything they they can to lift up Mm -hmm. another. What are your thoughts, Douglas? Um, So (laughs) I think in writing this book, I came to really understand in uh in a real a, a gut worthy sense i think maybe for the first time in my life um the way in which narrative um plays this enormous role in um tracking out the story of history so you know for ukrainian immigrants um you know, the story that they're told is, you know, one of their incredible overcoming of the odds, their immigration, their starting from nothing, their, um, you know, hard work and resilience as a family, as a community, as a church, working together and building up their um, their communities in, into what they have now. That's an amazing story. And there's something that gets threatened in that story when you run a parallel version of that story with another community right next door that's not succeeding. And they're not succeeding because they don't receive 160 acres of free land. They don't receive the free food. They don't get the extra money poured into their schools. And so I think we need to find a way to continue to celebrate these stories of of successful of waves of immigration of success that we've had mm-hmm. in Canada from the Vietnamese, the Ukrainians, Syrians, and others. And these are amazing stories of success and resilience. What I think we need to do is find a way to also honor indigenous stories of strength, of resilience, of adaptation. Um, and be able to do that in ways that don't threaten the narrative of success of other Im- mm-hmm. of, of immigrant groups, that we need to find a way to be able to honor one another. And I think just learning about each other's cultures is a tremendously important way uh, of doing that. I mean, in the book, we see uh, characters who are settlers who have had uh, prejudices their whole lives, but through going to communities, through spending time with people, through mm-hmm. learning about them, uh, they learn to overcome all of those prejudices. There, you know, Nelson uh, towards the end, who's an older gentleman um, in his seventies, he realizes that he has spent his whole life as a racist, but he's self-aware enough to say, "And maybe I still am." which is mm-hmm. just a, a tremendous self-awareness and growth. So I think the answer is, you know, uh, learning to realize that we don't have to give up heroic stories to adopt other stories, that they mm-hmm. can live side by side, um, and to spend uh, to learn to try and spend time uh, in each other's companies to just learn, not about other's cultures or their languages or their traditions, just to learn about them as people, because that's, that, that's where the prejudice really lies. It's it, it against people, not, not cultures, I think. Go and have coffee. Go and meet sure. people. Talk to each other. Listen to each other. Go on like, a date. 
you know, go like we always to talk about uh, what the maybe the local mayor and council should go out to the reserve to the chief and council meeting, and then the chief and council can come into town and go and break bread with the mayor and their council. Like some, it's just talking. There, there are two communities. Things like that can can build better relationships. Yeah, and I think people are afraid too, right? I mean, that's uh, they're they're afraid to to start the conversations there. I think, and they're afraid of being uh, shoved away. So mm-hmm. I think you know a little bravery, you know, a little, <laughs> a little bravery, a, lo- a few loaves of bread probably go a long way. Yeah, a few loaves of bread and a few uh, pieces of bannock and everything else can yeah be <laughs> shared. Right. Now, Douglas, you just spoke as a keynote speaker at the 50th anniversary for the Public Policy Forum, and you gave a very very powerful speech, and it resonated with the people. I was there in the crowd. You know, there uh, and there's a lot of people, and, and you received a standing ovation. Can you just explain and tell us a little bit about your speech and 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 like it, it touched everybody? But why do you think your your words touched at this 50th anniversary of the Public Policy Forum? And, and this is a big think tank forum. This is a big deal. You were you were the big deal there. You were the <laughs> yeah. So can you explain a little bit about your speech to our listeners and then what 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 do you think? touched and moved and inspired people. Thank you, Perry. So for the, I also want, I also want to thank Stobo, who's my co-writer on the speech, and it, it, was, uh, it was very well received. And it was entitled Public Policy from an Indigenous Perspective, uh, which was for the 50th anniversary of the Institute for Research on Public Policy. And I wanted to, uh, you know, make sure that it was uh, Indigenous in orientation. So I wanted that right up front. Um, and the speech is also, it was deep, it's deep, it's a very personal speech. Um, and so I, I talk about my experiences as, as a young man when I first became an Indian and then wrote the Department of Indian Affairs to go like, what does that actually mean? Um, and it ends with a story about, about my father's passing. Uh, but, but in between, um, I, I talk, I, I wonder aloud and I think this is something that many people often feel is like, why can't we get to big answers? Like, why can't we even imagine big solutions? And I think there's two reasons why I, I suggest in the talk. And one of them involves um, indigenous people and the other largely settler people. And on the indigenous side, I, you know, I spoke about how we indigenous academics and scholars and journalists need to take some more responsibility for how we talk about these claims. Um, and the example that I use is that instead of saying, you know, we want land back, which, it, you know, what does that even mean? Instead, we should talk about how we want jurisdiction over our territory, which are words that government officials can understand. You can look them up in the dictionary and it's clear what you mean. Uh, it doesn't involve, you know, pri- private property turning ha- changing hands. It just means, you know, which level of government's in control of taxation. So I think that, you know, settler people like to hear, <laughs> frankly, that that not everything is, is always their fault, that we indigenous people have some responsibility here, right? Mm-hmm. And so I want to take that responsibility and be serious about the way that I talk about these claims. And then the other part of the speech was to talk uh, largely about Valley, but in particular about the history component, about how you can't really um, have the claims of injustice today resonate with you until you can see the whole chain of them. 
And so education, I think, is a really important part of uh, of getting settler people to a place where the education provides them with the energy to say, yes, a big solution is necessary. A big solution is possible. We don't just need to talk about you know program funding or or whatever it is. That big solutions are the ones that are going to get us there, and to encourage people to have the faith in their imagination and in the imagination of others <clears throat> to embrace big ideas. And I, and I close with um with a story about you know what happens to you at the end of days, and you know in Cree tradition it involves. Mm-hmm meeting the creator and being held to account for the gift of what you did with this life. And, you know, what I wanted to drive home to those, to everyone in that audience was that it's public policy, but it's personal to all of us. And there's a moment sometime when we're going to have to account for what we did with the opportunities to embrace change, to make this nation a better place. And either we will have done it or we'll hold our empty hands out in front of the creator and hope for a do-over. And, uh, and I don't want that to be me. No, that was a very powerful uh, speech and a very powerful message. So, Stobo and Douglas, again, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, the Akamemi podcast. And I always close off with, with one final question to my guests, and that's about hope. And you know our age-old saying, like, try to leave more hope in a room than when you walked into it. And so my question to both of you is this. In light of what's going on in Canada and the world and everything else, all the challenges and all these things coming about in, in a negative way, you know, I, I always say, what, what gives you hope? Provide our listeners with some hope. What gives you hope, Douglas? And Stobo, what gives you hope? Well, working with Douglas gave me a hell of a lot of hope, to be honest. I was just, um, he just made me cry in telling his story, and he does that, I would say, every time uh, I listen to him for a sustained period of time, he makes me laugh, and he usually makes me cry. And I've uh, this just this process of writing this book has filled me with hope because I keep learning, and and um, I've had a lot of fun, and so it's a real a treat for me to just spend time with Douglas. That gives me always hope. I want to tell you that, Douglas. And I would also like to mention that the characters in this story, in this book, they fill me with hope. And I'll just mention a couple of them. One of them, his name is Troy, and his father's name is Nelson. And as we were briefly saying earlier, there are people who grew up in this town so close to the reserve, and they know almost nothing about Mm -hmm. it. And Troy is able, as a grown man training to be a teacher, to go to an abandoned residential school to party. And this is not a happy moment in the book, and the hope is not yet there. But as we see in the story, you know, for the last 20, 25 years, he has grown so much, and he has earned the respect of families and Mm -hmm. parents and students in Weiwei Capital because that's where he's chosen to dedicate his life. And I think he fills me with hope because he shows me and I think he shows us that people are capable of learning. They're capable of caring. And we shouldn't write, we can't write people off. We can't write this town off. We can't write these people off. We're all capable of learning and we're capable of working together. And, and in this place, they are. And I hope 
across the country we will see ever more of. Thanks, Stobo. Douglas, what gives you hope? Well, uh, thank you, Stobo. And uh, certainly working with Stobo has taught me that, um, you know, there are settler people who are trying, who are really trying to do it right and, and do the right thing in, in the right way. And that's very hopeful. But I think the thing that gives me the most hope, um, Perry, is the thought that we may, as a nation, um, as individuals, beginning to come to terms what it, with what it might mean to make things right. And I don't think that we have had the time or the energy to start developing a vocabulary and a grammar for talking about a shared future. Um, you know, the tools in the toolbox that we have, the ideas that we have are largely like sort of old Western ideas and they don't provide the right fit with imagining a new kind of relationship, a, a new partnership, a way of sharing the land. So I think that people are beginning to see that, that the toolbox that we have isn't, isn't big enough, that indigenous peoples have a completely different set of tools that we could use to draw upon, to think about how we could govern ourselves, how we could, uh, how we could co-govern ourselves. Um, and I think that people are beginning to realize that this is going to take a while. Like that, I'm, I am actually, <laughs> I'm overjoyed when people uh, sigh about how long this is going to take because it's unrealistic to think that we're going to make, you know, amazing progress in the next five years or ten years. This is an intergenerational mm. process, and we need to start wrapping our minds around how are we going to take big steps? How are we going to get our grandchildren? to where we want them to be. That's the struggle, not just us today, but to really think about those generations in the future. How do we continue to build a better country together? That's a, a very powerful statement coming from both of you. Thanks again so much, Stobo and Douglas, for being on the Akamebu podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. All of you listening, a very big thank you. And if you like this podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen. It helps people to find these interviews. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And you can find me on social media by searching at Perry Belgard. And we'll be back next month. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard. Egoze, kanaskum tinoa.